chapter 11. Uh, after we read, I just want to invite you to uh, turn to your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. We're going to be looking at several different places uh, in that story today. So uh, turn to Judges chapter 8. Let's uh, read the text that's on the screen together. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Then he said to them, Let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Gideon made an ephod from all this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets and who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. This is the word of God. Now, many of you, maybe like me, grew up uh, in church uh, hearing about the story of Gideon. Uh, maybe you remember this guy who we encounter first in the, uh, the story of Judges as a, a young man uh, hiding uh, because of his enemies, the Midianites. And uh, God shows up and this angel of the Lord and, and says, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior and I'm going to use you to, uh, to rescue my people. Uh, there are some episodes of Gideon's doubt and faith and doubt and faith, but the, uh, the short version is Gideon uh, gets together an army, but uh, God uh, narrows down a large army to just a small band of 300 men. And with these 300 men, uh, Gideon routes a whole uh, massive army of these Midianite invaders. Now, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you remember that story, uh, and maybe that's the story that you remember hearing as, uh, as kids. Uh, I remember being in Sunday school classes and, uh, and hearing the story of Gideon and, uh, and sort of being pointed to the thought that, that we should be like Gideon. We should trust God uh, even when the odds uh, are against us. And then pretty much that's where the story of Gideon stopped. But that's not where the story of Gideon stops in the Bible. And so today, we're going to look at the rest of Gideon's story, and we're going to evaluate whether or not that picture of Gideon and what we're supposed to do with Gideon actually matches up with what we see played out on the scriptures of Judges as we turn to Judges chapter 8. So are you all ready to do that? Good. All right. I like it when we got guests here. Uh, we can encourage them. You can talk back. Are you ready, guests? Hey, yes, very good. All right, so let's do it together. We're looking at Judges chapter 8 now. We're looking at the rest of this story of Gideon. And as I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Judges chapter 7, there are some seeds of maybe some alternative motivations that are coming out of Gideon's heart even back in that story that we're familiar with. So if you have your Bible, we're actually going to uh, flip back to Judges chapter 7 because there is a moment in Judges chapter 7 where we begin to realize, hold on, wait a second, 
what's going on with this guy, Gideon? So if you've got your Bibles, we're actually going to dial back to verse 18 of chapter 7. It says this. Gideon is is, uh, talking. He says to his men, when I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpets all around the camp. And then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, if you remember the first part of the story, this ought to sort of jog a question mark in your mind as to, wait, hold on a second. Because if you dial back to the first part of chapter 7, you remember that when God established this whole thing, he began this whole uh, relationship with Gideon and began all this, uh, God shows a very clear concern that it would be his name that got the glory for this battle. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. God's concern at the beginning of the story was that if there was too many men, someone other than him might end up trying to take the credit for it. So as we come to this moment where Gideon has his army all around the camp, it's at night, and they're they're pressured in here, and you hear Gideon say, okay, when I blow the trumpet, everyone is to shout, for the Lord. You're thinking, yes, that's right, that's who's supposed to get the glory. But then when he adds, and for Gideon, we as the readers are supposed to go, wait a second, but it actually gets a little worse. We see that this this seed of something else motivating Gideon besides faithful obedience to God, we we see the seed beginning to sprout and to uh, to, to show more of itself as we see what happens after Gideon's initial attack. So if we flip to the end of chapter 7, we turn to verse uh, 22 and 23. Here we now have fast-forwarded. They've blown the trumpets. The Midianite army has uh, uh, been in fear. They've been attacking and killing each other. They're, They're routed, and they're running away. And then we get to verse 23, and a strange little detail emerges. It says this, Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim with this message, come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the water courses ahead of them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. So quick pop quiz, are y'all ready? I don't know, y'all don't seem ready. Are y'all ready? Quick pop quiz here, okay? When God set up this battle... How many men were supposed to be in the army that was conquering? Come on, three, 300. You can say 300, okay? 300, there we go. 300, everybody together, 300. That's supposed to be the extent of the army, right? So that it is Yahweh, God, who gets credit for the glory. So what's happening here? Why are these messengers sent out to Naphtali? Why does Gideon send messengers to Ephraim? Why is it that as soon as there is a hint of victory, Gideon quickly shows a different kind of motivation when he's ready to now move and mop up this Midianite force? He doesn't turn to the Lord for his help, 
but rather he turns to his countrymen and rises them to battle, and he says, come follow me. And now we have a moment where it's no longer even a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, but it's just a sword for Gideon. You see, we begin to see emerging a picture of this man, Gideon, a little bit different than what we might have thought before. There is a, another motivation working in him. It is not merely just a faith-filled obedience that which he is uh, acting to attack these Midianites. No, there is something else in him. It is this motivation of pride. And we start to see it come into full display. The flower has bloomed as we move to chapter 8 and read about an account that happens between Gideon and these Ephraimites that he called to join the battle. Listen to this, chapter 8, verse 1. The men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us and not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they argued with him violently. So he, that is Gideon, said to them, What have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God handed over to you Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. What was I able to do compared to you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. So what just happened here? Gideon calls the Midianites, they come out, they help to finish this battle up, they capture the two commanders, the, the Ephraimites end up killing those two commanders, and then Gideon and the Ephraimites come together, and they have a fierce argument. But you know what they're arguing over? Who's going to get credit for the victory? The Ephraimites are furious that Gideon would start an attack without them because they feel left out. They feel like they ought to have been the ones who were part of this battle. And what does Gideon do? Being the humble, faith-fueled guy that he is, he immediately says, it wasn't me, it was Yahweh God, right? Not exactly. See, we have to look a little more carefully here at our Bibles, we have seen him introduce uh, the name of Yahweh in a way that our Old Testament translations help us if we know to look for this. Okay, so look carefully now at verse 22 of chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7, verse 22, Gideon's men blew their trumpets, and in your Bible, if you've got it in front of you, chapter 7, verse 22, it says, the Lord caused the men in the whole army to turn on each other. Now, looking at your Bible, what's different about the letters that spell the word Lord? They're all capitalized, aren't they? Now, see, now some of you who don't have your Bible, you're wishing you did so that you could look and see. You could even open it up on your phone and see this, but you will find in English, modern English translations, you're going to see the word Lord is spelled in all caps. This is the clue that the translators are giving us that in the Hebrew original, the word they are translating is the word Yahweh. Yahweh was the, the personal name of God that he revealed to the people of Israel. They were to worship him and him alone. Yahweh was supposed to be their God. Yahweh was supposed to be their king. They, were, they took this so seriously uh, that the Israelites of the day and Jews even today won't even speak the name of Yahweh when they come to it in the Hebrew text. They will insert something like Hashem, which means 
the name, or they will say Adonai, which means Lord. And so in our English translations of the Old Testament, when you're reading through and you see Lord in all caps, you can know that that's pointing to Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Now fast forward. When we get to chapter 8, and Gideon's in the midst of this conflict with the Ephraimites, he says, Yahweh handed over to you Oreb and Zeb. Someone's supposed to say, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> because if you're reading carefully in your Bible, you'll see that that's not there. It doesn't say Lord. It's not in all caps. It just says God. Now, for us, we tend to hear this and think, well, they're just synonyms. They're, uh, they're replaceable. And sometimes they are. But in Hebrew, the word translated here as God is the word Elohim. And for us, when we read in the Old Testament, sometimes Elohim is pointing towards Yahweh God. It's a, a general term. But sometimes Elohim is, a, is referring to all kinds of different gods. Because the word Elohim is a plural form. You see, what we know about the Ephraimites is that they were just like the rest of the Israelites of the day. They weren't just worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and what other, other gods helped to suit them at the time. And so when we see Gideon saying here, Elohim helped you. Elohim's the one who handed this over to you. What our carefully tuned ears are supposed to hear is that he did not give credit to Yahweh. It's like him saying, um, uh, good fortune helped us. Or maybe this has happened to you. You've, uh, you've prayed, God, bring, uh, bring healing to someone I love or to me. Uh, God, help me with this job or help me with this test. Uh, I'm not sure what to do. Give me wisdom. And then he answers your prayer. God does bring healing. He does give you guidance. He, uh, he gives you wisdom. He provides a way forward. And then your friends come up to you and say, hey, wow, this is awesome. I'm so excited. And then what do we say? We say, well, you know, it was good. I'm really glad that that happened. But we don't say, man, I have been desperately praying for weeks for this. I have been asking God to show up and to help me. And then God answered my prayer. Why do we not talk like that? Because it would feel kind of weird, right? I mean, maybe they wouldn't know how to take that. Uh, maybe they would think that we're sort of super religious or, uh, or fanatics. What's being revealed in our hearts in those moments is the same thing that's revealed in Gideon's heart in this moment. Because he's not just motivated by pride here. He's also motivated by fear. He's afraid of what those Ephraimites will say. He's afraid that if he says to the Ephraimites, well, look, God showed up to me. The, the angel of the Lord appeared. Yahweh showed up to me and talked to me and told me to do this. That's why I did it. If he had said that to the Ephraimites, they'd have said, you are crazy, Gideon. You are off your rocker. Now we're going to kill you and take over your area too. Gideon was afraid. He didn't know what they were going to do. This was a powerful tribe. And so in his fear, he shifts the glory away from Yahweh God and to himself and the Ephraimites. And we see that there's a different kind of motivation working in him. Not only is it pride, but it's also fear. 
But Gideon gets even more complex as the story progresses. I mean, perhaps this next one is the most shocking of all. Because after dealing with the Ephraimites, we see Gideon pursuing the leftover Midianites. The, the commanders had been conquered. The vast majority of their army had been killed. But a band of them had escaped with the kings of Midian. And Gideon goes after them. So look at verse 4 of chapter 8. Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Succoth, that is, they are Israelites who live on the other side of the Jordan River, please give some loaves of bread to the troops under my command because they are exhausted for I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Succoth answered, are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Gideon replied, very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmunna over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit for the sake of time. But what you read next is that he goes to another village and gets the same response. And there, instead of threatening to beat them with thorn bushes, he threatens to tear down their tower, which is their security mechanism for their whole village. And then Gideon does exactly what he says. He, he pursues the Midianites. He catches up with them. He, he uh, surprises this final group of soldiers with their king, and he, he routs them all, and he captures those two kings. And he marches them right back to those two villages. You know what he does? He goes to the first village and says, here they are. Here's those kings that you said I didn't have and I couldn't control. Here they are. And then you know what he does? He takes the leaders of that village and he beats them with thorns, shaming them. But that's not the worst part. He then goes to that other village, the second one, the one he threatened to tear down their tower, and he does. But not just that, but he murders every man in the village, effectively sentencing all the wives and the children to slavery and poverty. He decimates them. Why? What is driving this man that would lead him to such violent extremes? Well, we know why if we keep reading in the story. If we pick back up at verse 18, we begin to see what it is that has been driving this man Gideon to exhaustion and to violence. Here's what it says. He asked Zeba and Zalmunna, those are the two Midianite kings that he captured. He asked them, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Anybody wondering what happened at Tabor? Well, you ought to be because we don't know. This hadn't showed up in this story yet. There's been no indication that um, these Midianites had been at Tabor. We really don't know what's happening here. But we get a clue in what follows. They were like you, they said. Each resembled the son of a king. So Gideon said, They were my brothers. 
the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you would let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Ziba and Zalmunna said, get up and strike us down yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. What is driving Gideon? Revenge. Those two Midianite kings, apparently at some point in the past, had encountered his brothers at this town of Tabor, and you know what they did to them? They killed them. Gideon, this young man that we met, kind of uh, uh, messing with his, his barley and grain and threshing his crops. We thought that was the beginning of his story, but it's not. This man had already encountered these Midianites. And once he saw an opportunity to allow his vengeance to be fulfilled, he goes to exceedingly great lengths to do it. Gideon is driven by his revenge, so much so that he would kill his own countrymen and murder these two kings. So there's something that we ought to notice that's been missing from this part of the story. And maybe this is why it doesn't show up in Sunday school very often. There's, there's a character that we would expect to be appearing in these stories of, uh, of conquest and of conquering, but his voice doesn't show up. Do you know whose voice that is? It's the voice of Yahweh God. From the moment Gideon declares a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, we hear nothing else from the voice of God. We see this man who began in a faith-fueled obedience, motivated by a faith in what Yahweh had called him to do. And we begin to realize this man is a mixed bag of motivations. There is pride, there is fear, there is vengeance, and perhaps in this last little sequence that we've already read, we see as well that there is greed. If we come to the end of Gideon's story, we see the Israelites coming to him after all of this conquest and violence, and the Israelites say to Gideon, this is verse 22, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And here we take a deep breath, right? Here, finally, we've come to the end of the story. Yes, he started in faith, but he had all these other mixed motivations, but but this story is, in the end, he turns out okay. He turns out to be a good guy in the end. In the end, he returns to giving credit to Yahweh. And so that's what we're supposed to learn from, uh, from Gideon. Except that's not the end. Gideon's story continues. Then he said to them, 
Let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. I'm skipping forward to verse 27. Gideon made an ephod from all this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel, Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Gideon, with his words, when the people came to him and said, be our king, you rule over us, you have, uh, have managed to overthrow the Midianites, you've managed to get the tribes to work together, you should be our king. Gideon, with his words, says, I'm not your king. Yahweh is your king, I'm not going to be your king. His words said the right thing. But his actions declared a very different position. He said, I'm not your king, but then like every other Canaanite king in the era, he requested a tribute. He took money from these people. He became the richest Israelite in Israelite history at this point by accumulating this great wealth. He'd already accumulated prestige and power over the different tribes. Now he accumulates great wealth and then if that's not enough, he formed something called an ephod. It was like a, like a breastplate that the uh, Israelite priest was supposed to wear. It was a religious symbol that people respected because of its religious nature. Gideon made his own out of all that gold, and then he set it up in his hometown. What was he doing here? Well, he was perhaps wisely or shrewdly recognizing that if he really wanted the power and influence over his countrymen, it wasn't going to be enough to have a military victory, nor enough to have a financial victory. He was also going to have to have their hearts. And so he set up his ephod and said, hey, if you need to get counsel from God, you come to my town. And before long, those Israelites were coming to his town to worship that ephod. Gideon, the one who likely we grew up hearing, we should be like him. We should be uh, uh, men and women of faith. We should trust God's work. When we take a closer look, we realize that maybe we shouldn't be like him because we already are. Isn't it true that for some of us, our hearts betray these kind of mixed motivations? We find it hard to celebrate when others win and when others are advancing and when it's not our kids who are accelerating. We find it hard because we really want that glory to go to us. We've got a mixed motive of pride. And, and we find it hard when we're faced with a conflict to, to sort of speak truth. We try to dodge around it. And we've already talked about ways that we might avoid that in talking about prayer and God's answer to prayer. And, and doesn't it reveal that inside of us there is a, a, a mixture of motives that maybe fear has a greater priority and hold over us than we realize? And, and maybe for some of us, we're not even sure why we feel so driven. 
why we have to succeed, why we have to excel, why, why we must have connections with people, why, why we must do these things. And perhaps deep inside of us, there is a, a tyrant ruler who is seeking to get justification, satisfaction for wounds from our past. And maybe all of us have a mixed motive where if given the opportunity, we'd be sure glad to consolidate power and influence and the protection of our own, our families and uh, the people that we love, even if it means isolating and putting others in a position of jeopardy and danger because we have a responsibility before God to take care of our families. And yet we forget that he's called even those others our neighbors. See, Gideon's not the only one with mixed motives. And so we have to ask the question, what do we do with Gideon? What do we do with a leader who we begin to realize has, has this mixture of motives? Well, we, we know, we instinctively know, well, we reject them, right? We, uh, we shouldn't follow leaders like that. We shouldn't be people like that, which is great, except when we're honest with ourselves and we realize we are people like that. And so, do we reject ourselves? Do we submit ourselves to the same judgment that we so readily would give to others? What do we do with Gideon? And what have we done with ourselves? But let me just, as we wrap up our time, point you to this question. It's more important than what do we do with Gideon. It's the question what does God do with Gideon? You see, this ends his story in Judges, but he shows up again, as we read already, in the pages of the New Testament. We see in the pages of the New Testament, Gideon listed in a, a long catalog of men and women of faith. Now, we read this already in chapter 11, verse 32 of Hebrews, where uh, we say, time is too short, the writer says, to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And as we skip down to verse 39, we see something rather intriguing. All these, Gideon included, were approved through their faith. What does God do with Gideon? He approved him. Well, maybe the, the author of Hebrews didn't read chapter 8 of Judges. Maybe the author of Hebrews doesn't really know the Old Testament. Well, that, that doesn't work because of all the New Testament writers, the author of Hebrews seems to be the most tuned in to the Old Testament. He is very careful in his interpretation of the Old Testament. Clearly, he would have known Gideon's story. So how could he possibly say that all of these, Gideon included, was approved by God? The author of Hebrews knows what we all must learn that Gideon and every other human leader 
They're dead ends. They can't save. But God has provided a king who does save. Jesus Christ. And King Jesus, when, when you come to him, he doesn't say, give me your gold earrings. He doesn't demand a tribute from you. He doesn't say, give me your good works, give me your religion, uh, uh, give me your best. Jesus doesn't say, give me anything. Jesus gives all of himself for you. And, and, and King Jesus, get this, King Jesus, when he's faced with mixed motive people like you and me, when he's faced with people who failed to support when they should have, who failed to obey when they should have, he doesn't do what Gideon did. I mean, you remember him? Gideon, when he faced those people like that, he, he tortured them and killed them. He brought vengeance. But when King Jesus comes, he doesn't bring vengeance. He doesn't come to you and say, now I'm going to get you. No. When King Jesus comes, he brings mercy. He says, I've already paid the price for what you did. It's paid in full. And so I am free to say to you, not condemned. I'm free to say to you, accepted. I'm free to say to you, loved. I am free to say to you, adopted. Because King Jesus, he's a way better king than Gideon or any other human leader that would attempt to declare salvation for you and me. King Jesus is the good king. And why does King Jesus approve Gideon? Because despite all of his mixed motives, there was a moment in Gideon's life where he said, Yahweh God, I'll trust you. And catch this, y'all. We who are a people of mixed motives, we are approved not by our good deeds, not by our religion, not by our ability to follow through with all the good things that Christ has earned for us. We are not approved by what we do. We are approved by what Jesus did. And if there is anything else that we hold up as our approval, then it will not work. But if we will cling to Jesus to King Jesus saying over you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you will cling to that hope, then you will find that the great gift that King Jesus brings to you is grace. And so all that's left for us to do is to respond in gratitude. Say, thank you, King Jesus. I could, I could not earn this. Thank you, King Jesus. I can't even get my life straight. Even knowing this, I still can't get it right. Thank you, King Jesus, for your grace. So today, I just want to invite you. Come to King Jesus. He's a good king. He will give you rest. He will give you mercy. All, all that is expected of you is to come and say, Jesus, I need you to be my king.
and trust in his perfect grace that he's proved for you. Let's pray. Eternal one. How is this even possible? This is not how this world seems to work. It's not what our instincts tell us about you. So we would not know this if you had not declared it in your son Jesus and had it not been spread across this world through your faithful gospel missionaries. We need this good news. So today, I just pray for all my friends here, all my mixed motive friends like me. Would you help us today to set aside the other kings we've been trying to serve, to to put them down, and to run to you, King Jesus. Be our king. Set us free. Let us live in this grace that you have so freely promised. Speak, King Jesus, to our hearts so that we might know that we are loved. We pray this in your powerful and perfect and good and merciful name. Amen. We're going to stand.